This is Ken Forster, Executive Director of Momenta Partners and Momenta Ventures. Welcome to our Digital Leadership Podcast. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to episode 105 of our Digital Leadership Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Tim Neal, CEO of GoExpedi, a Momenta client. Tim spent four plus years living in China where he led global marketing strategy for TSC, a leading drilling parts equipment manufacturer. At TSC, Tim helped identify multi-million dollar opportunities for introducing new product lines in global markets. Prior to that, Tim led Arsenal Football Club's digital marketing efforts in China. Tim earned his BA at the University of Oregon, Lundquist College of Business, with a double major in business administration in Mandarin Chinese. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, Ken. It's great to be here today. Yeah, and it's great to have you as uh, as well. Um, I guess a little just of, of the backstory. GoExpedi is actually uh, one of their key investors is Crosslink Capital. Uh, a gentleman named Matt Biggie introduced us uh, not too long ago, and we have co-invested via Momenta Ventures and uh, some of uh, um, other companies that Crosslink has invested in, like Akua. And uh, and so it was uh, good to have a chance to meet GoExpedi a little bit. And Tim and I talked uh, just recently about some of the background stuff, and I was just so impressed with his uh, his story, especially kind of the bootstrap story that I said, oh, I got to feature you on a podcast. So uh, thus, uh, the backstory on this for those who are interested. So Tim, let's start with your professional journey. Tell us a bit about your background and how it has informed your views of what we like to call digital industry. Yeah, so I'd say it's a bit unconventional. Um, started out as an international ski racer, which brought me to college and um, somehow ended up in China. And so I spent, like you mentioned, four plus years in China, but really started in more a digital front role with leading Arsenal's digital efforts. And so it was really kind of a unique path there in that it was in a foreign language, foreign country, and really had to understand the user. So it really made me reflect on the digital industry from the outside in rather than having a formulaic approach and kind of figuring out what resonated with um, the ultimate client at the end of the day. You uh, you made an early decision to focus on this dual degree of Mandarin Chinese and business administration, which I, I must say is actually quite for, for thoughtful uh, or for or foresightful, if you will. What was your inspiration for taking this path? I'd say it ultimately was wanting to take the road less traveled. Um, you know, I've always been intrigued by language, was never really good at language, and um, took a trip out to Beijing right before I started college. I was actually signed up for French, I think, in college, went out to Beijing and really saw the scale in China and was just in awe and said, I need to figure out a way to be here. And so immediately got home, added that double major, and the rest is history. So international ski racer, um, then uh, heading up digital marketing for uh, for Arsenal's football club. Uh, what what took you into the oil and gas sector and specifically to TSC? Yeah, I'd say um, really at the end of the day, it was the scale of the industry. I mean, working in sports was great. I'd say being a fan of sports is even greater. <laughs> um, but 
really with oil and gas, it's amazing when you really look at the industry, there are multi-billion dollar companies that nobody's heard of. And no pun intended, the, the world is fueled off of this sector. And so it was really being able to have a chance to go inside a large organization that was building rigs, building equipment for them, but then really be able to make change within that organization, being the only expat in the company um, with over 3,000 employees, and really being able to see kind of the industry from a, a broader perspective was really attractive. So you you had the unique opportunity to work at the intersection of of China and the U.S. Uh, in, in this this as you said this uh, very large sector of oil and gas and and at a very formative time so 2013 through 2016. What were some of your key learnings during this time relative to um, the the differences in business between U.S. and China? Yeah, it was actually a crazy time in China. Um, right when I started, it was. China was known as kind of the copycat in the world. It was the Baidu's of the world were coming up, the Weibo's. These were all, you know, you could name Google, you could name AIM, you could name all these different apps that, and companies that really China replaced with their own localized version. But from 2013 to 2016, basically when I would take a trip, come back after a week, you'd see radical change within the country. You'd see new infrastructure being built, there was a bridge put up in 72 hours on a four-lane highway outside of my house, which was just mind-blowing. And then at the other end is you saw the innovation. I think during that time, China really took a step and said, we're not copying. We can innovate on our own. And so by the time I left in 2016, I paid all my bills. I paid for restaurants all through one centralized app. I was able to transfer all my friends money, chat with them. And it was kind of an amazing experience there. I could also get food delivered or a chef arrive within 10 minutes. And we really saw the digitization of an entire country. And I think seeing that rapid change and that government kind of incentivized change was really fascinating during that time. I remember at the beginning of uh, the uh, COVID crisis, there was this uh, time-lapse uh, sequence of them setting up a, uh, a, a temporary medical facility, of course, in the, you know, kind of the, the, the zero city, if you will. And it was uh, just fascinating. I think it was also 72 hours, if I remember right, how quickly they put it up. So it is uh, it is amazing to see when you get the uh, kind of the, the human mind and actions, you know, completely aligned what one can accomplish. I guess fast forwarding to you know what I'll say the ongoing challenging relationships between the U.S. and China today. Um, as we're recording this, I think uh, Trump over the weekend was supposed to ban TikTok as an example, as a as an app. But what would you advise any company considering doing business in China today, based on your experience? I'd say the first is to do due diligence. China is a land of lots of opportunity in terms of supplier base and relationships, but it also, you know, comes with being a foreign country where there's a language disconnect and there is greed inherently in, in an emerging economy. And so I think the key is, you know, there's the Chinese word guanxi, which means relationships and really being able to build relationships with factories, with supply chain personnel is essential because then you can build that level of trust. And if you have that already established, when something like COVID happens where there's supply chain kind of hurdles that need to be jumped over, the relationships are what 
helps you push through it. Whereas if these are non-existent, you're kind of just sending an email to an empty box, um, much like anywhere else in the world. And so I think that it's important to kind of keep a cautious eye, but to really um, work those relationships. Yeah, I've uh, had similar experiences working with uh, Japanese companies during the time that I've worked with them too. And the relationships there are developed um, over time and, and of course for a very, very long time. And uh, and so um, even as we look at um, partnerships, many times an acquisition as an example, will start with a, um, a commercial relationship and then move to a joint venture and then an investment and ultimately, you know, will, uh, you know, will be an acquisition over time and, and never jumps directly into it, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, so, those are the most yeah. successful, definitely. Oh, yes. Yeah, I know. Well said. So all of this has culminated in your founding of uh, GoExpedi, uh, which you describe as intelligent industrial procurement solutions uh, to the oil and gas industry. So what problem are you trying to solve and why? So basically, we live in the energy MRO space. So anything that wears out, runs out, or breaks on an energy asset. And this industry is you know, it's been doing well for so long that there hasn't been change. It kind of was that if it ain't broke, don't fix a mentality. But at the end of the day, we're not unlike the bookseller market or others in that people are buying critical products from brick-and-mortar storefronts when they don't need to anymore in this digital age. And so what we're really trying to do is put tech in the hands of our end users so that they can get the parts that they need in a really rapid manner. I think what was uh, fascinating for me in some of our early conversations was how you guys went around bootstrapping this. And again, you're as you I think you identified uh, coming in your non-traditional background coming in, certainly the oil and gas experience and everything. But how did you um, how did you start the company? And tell us about some of your early experiences in that as well. Yeah, so if you want to know any gas station microwave in Texas, I can probably tell you. But uh, we basically <laughs> started the business grounding and pounding. We had a value proposition that we believed in and that having a digital first tech storefront um, would resonate with our end user and being able to find the right parts, but also get those delivered. But at the end of the day, we were a young startup and didn't have a lot of money. So we had to drive our pickup trucks 3,000 miles a week and convince the market that change could happen. And so we did that for about a year, um, just going from Houston to West Texas, back and forth, driving 18 hours a day, and uh, a lot of five-hour energies in there. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I, I've been there. I appreciate that. Um, so Tell us a bit about, I guess, the way you're deployed into your market. How do you engage with both your um, your your clients and customers, and then the suppliers who are uh, br- uh, supplying some of the MRO parts as well? Yeah. So for our customers, I'd say it's a top-down, bottom-up approach. We have a management control center that allows um, C-level supply chain directors to really view all the expenditure of assets in real time with live interactive dashboards that just frankly didn't exist in the industry before. But then we also have a robust ecosystem of private-labeled um, procurement websites that are deployed at the field level. So if I'm an asset manager, I can go on to my website place an order, and then within three days, that product arrives in full. And so it's really a robust, robust ecosystem to enable transparent end-to-end supply chain. On the manufacturer side, I'd say we work with over 400 manufacturers, and really the value to the manufacturer is unlike the traditional opaque distributorship model of 
I'm a distributor, I place an order with you and hope that you have it in stock as a manufacturer, we provide data insights to help with their manufacturer strategy. So I can tell you glove size variances in different regions, and that really helps you manage your business as a manufacturer in more real time rather than just kind of putting the grass up to the wind and seeing what direction it flows. In a recent article from our advisory team, we predicted that supply chain and end visibility would be a bigger wave than the ERP or enterprise resource planning of the 2000s, outlining that supply chain is still one of the least digitized of company processes. Why do you think this is the case? I think it had been something that just was ongoing in organizations and was not really seen as a critical path, so it was ignored. And I think today it's really with the B2C world putting supply chain in focus where I get mad if Amazon doesn't arrive in two days now. And I set a new expectation. I think that expectation is being set in the B2B space where people are needing equipment, supplies in a consistent manner that it's important to digitize the process of supply chain to understand where bottlenecks exist and to really make that more efficient, especially with uncertainty in the world. It's important that you at least can manage the variables that you can manage. Um, otherwise, it leads to you know really catastrophic situations. Where, where do you see the biggest opportunities in, um, in your overall extent of, I guess, capitalizable and non-capitalizable parts or direct and indirect, I guess I should say, spend? I'd say that the biggest opportunity is really being able to take on entire assets and manage that expenditure where there's, and then from there, kind of the network effect of asset by asset comparisons. But I think the key is the, the end to end um, kind of transparency there that makes it really seamless. And so what I mean by that is, you know, in our industry, it takes, if I place an order on a Monday, I might get it on Friday, but I might get it on Saturday and I don't know when it's actually going to arrive what we can do is really provide lightning transparency so you can even see where the vehicle is driving your products to your asset. And I think that ultimately is what drives success because then it becomes less about people placing orders. It's more a proactive, seamless recurrence of supply because at the end of the day, people don't need to be making six figures to place orders for toilet paper. This is something that through data, we can, if we really empower the data, we can make sure that this is on a recurrent, recurring basis because we understand the actual trends. And most things in the world are, if you get down to it, are really trend-based. And of course, where you have a trend, you have the ability then to predict. And that's where you know the exactly. true value add and service can be provided, right? Uh, not to say you need to stock three pumps, but um, you know, based on our other uh, clients' usage, um, your pumps are going to have this much life, so you've got this much coverage depending on your fields or something to that effect, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we, we often like to talk about the World Economics Forums and their, their term, the Great Reset, when referring to the, the long-term impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. What do you see as the impact of this, quote-unquote, reset on supply chain, and I guess more specifically, your oil and uh, gas clientele? I'd say it was a, a double punch that led to a catalyst. And what I mean by that is we had the pandemic lead to the work-from-home environment, but also a compression of the economy. As, as re uh, in response to that, I'd say that 
when the economy shrunk and people were working from home, there was less energy demand. And so oil prices at the same time took a massive fall where we saw negative oil for the first time in forever. And what really happened there was companies had to react. The world was moving very fast, and typically in oil and gas, people freeze. They don't react. But what we saw was 30 to 40% head cut reductions. But that changed the incentive in the industry. People needed to look at their books. They needed to manage OPEX in real time and really get their hands on businesses. There was no longer this business has been here for 200 years and it would just continue. It was more an action mode. And with that came the lens on supply chain and really wanting to see everything in the supply chain, but also understand where discrepancies lie. Traditionally, people could just use credit cards and buy whatever they wanted. That's no longer the case in this new reality. And my opinion and seeing it from other clients when I was in the digital arm and uh, publicist group before also was once you give data to somebody, they never say, I don't want data anymore. It always becomes kind of a, a black hole that you want to dive deeper into. And so I don't think that this kind of impact will change because the economy will do better in the long term. I think people reset to a data-driven approach. Yeah, I'd fully agree with you. Um, one of the comments we've made on past podcasts is on the Momenta Ventures portfolio companies because we deal with uh, remote uh, asset management as a general thematic, i.e. remotely controlling, operating, maintaining, if you will, a piece of equipment. Um, and obviously where people can't get out to it, you, you need to have more of the uh, digital, if you will, touch in there. And so all of our companies have actually done pretty well during this downturn. Um, you know, one, the, uh, the, the buyers tend to to be at home, so they're actually more available uh, to uh, a lot of this remote um, worker spending on IT spending also had um, uh, implications across the board on enterprise and OT spending as uh, as well. And then three, you know, generally this thematic, which I think you capture very well in this idea of uh, data, right? Um, and you know, the ability to utilize that to be more efficient and uh, and effective. Um, Tell me a bit, how, how, is your, how is your guys' traction at this point at GoExpedi? So we've been able to um, see significant growth in the past couple of quarters. I think really it's, like I mentioned, about being able to get hold of data. We are the only one in the sector that offers live data. And so we've really seen a lot of customer interest around wanting to do this at a enterprise-level scale, is see their data, manage their data in real time, and get the products that they need when they need it. And so we've seen a, um, and it's not just drilling, it's midstream, it's super major, it's upstream and international. We're seeing a consistent theme across the sector. So as, as a uh, successful uh, entrepreneur yourself, um, what advice would you offer to aspiring entrepreneurs, especially those in this uh, digital industry space? Yeah, I'd say what's most important is the early days. I, I really think being an entrepreneur, especially you know pre-seed stage, it's a lot like being a cockroach. It's not really attractive. Um, a lot of people look at it, and, and you look at yourself in the mirror, and you're not always happy with you, you know you pass up on good salary. But at the end of the day, it's very hard to kill a cockroach. And I think an entrepreneur with that fire inside of them is very similar. And it's important to just kind of embrace that and continue through the hard times. We got to points where we had $1,000 in our bank accounts. But, you know, by persevering through that, we were able to 
kind of see the end of the tunnel. And I think that's just important is to remember who you are as an entrepreneur and why you did this journey, because it isn't always easy. Mm, passion plus perseverance, uh, absolutely key. And uh, and it is a common theme as we've asked this question in other podcasts of successful entrepreneurs as well. Uh, uh, some would say you have to be absolutely idealistic about the, the domain that you're in. <laughs> I've never heard of anybody refer to it as as being a uh, as a cockroach, but I, <laughs> but I like the, the idea of that tenacity. And uh, uh, for those of us who had lived in Atlanta, you do know those things live forever and come out of the weirdest places. So <laughs> no matter what, they're always there. So in closing, we always like to, um, to ask, you know, if you have any recommendations of books or resources that, uh, that inspire you. Yeah, I'd say the best um, book that I've read recently is a book called Billion Dollar Lessons by Paul Carroll. And really, it's businesses that have failed and why they failed and actions that they took that led to failure. And I think that you know, you can read a lot about success stories, but you can learn a lot from failures. And uh, it's short, short stories, but extremely informative about kind of what not to do. <laughs> That's a great suggestion. I hadn't read that, but um, I'm a big fan of the uh, Silicon Valley uh, style of fail fast. If you're going to do it, do it quick. Uh, and anything that gives you some sense of, uh, you know, what that future is uh, certainly would be helpful. So Billion Dollar Lessons by Paul Carroll. Thank you for that. So, Tim, thank you for this insightful interview. No problem. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, as well. So this has been Tim Neal, CEO and founder of GoExpedi, and uh, I'll say intelligent supply chain leader. So thank you for listening, and please join us next week for episode 106 of our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast Series, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. Thank you, and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Leadership Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the discussions. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of prior podcasts, webinars, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.